Okay, well, good to see you guys out here this morning. How many already have all your Christmas shopping done? Got it all done? How many have not started yet? Okay, that's dangerous right there. That is dangerous. How many about half and half? Half and half? Okay. Our Christmas series is called Looking for Redemption. In week one, we said that redemption is possible. And last week, we said that redemption is promised. This morning, we're headed to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to see that redemption is present. Matthew chapter 1, because of the promise of redemption, devout Jews had been looking for Messiah for thousands of years. Many generations of Israelites uh, had hoped that redemption would arrive on their watch. Moses had hoped, and Joshua had hoped, uh, David had hoped, the prophets had hoped, Daniel had hoped, but Messiah had never arrived on their watch. And in Luke 1, we saw uh, in our week one of the series that one of those watchers was a widow named Anna, and she had spent the majority of her life serving others in the temple courtyards while she waited for Messiah to arrive. And one day when Jesus was eight days old, Mary and Joseph brought him into the temple uh, to offer the gift of dedication required by the Jewish law. And there was Anna still waiting, still watching. And you can imagine the emotions that welled up in her heart as she realized that her lifetime hope had been accomplished. The Savior of the world had appeared, and she gave thanks to the Lord. And then it says that she spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Israel. And our series is Looking for Redemption. Today in Matthew 1, let's see that redemption is present. And as you turn there, don't forget I mentioned the candlelight services is Wednesday at 630 And then on these next two Sundays, we only have our 11 o'clock service uh, on both Christmas Day and on New Year's Day. So don't forget that. Matthew 1, verse number 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth the Son." And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him. And took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. And what a beautiful passage uh, that is to show us 
that Jesus would soon arrive to save his people from their sins. You know, it's amazing how uh, the relationship between God and man is, is shown through simple words uh, that in the English language we call prepositions. And maybe you remember about prepositions. Does anybody remember what a preposition is? Do you even remember that? Uh, there are nouns and, and verbs, and there are prepositions. And, and uh, you have all the different lists. I remember when I was in, in school, we had to learn the whole list. Aboard, about, above, across, after, against, along, among. The whole thing. And it's in the English language, there are about 150 prepositions, which seems like a lot. But when you think about the thousands and thousands of words in our language, we would not know how those words relate to each other without prepositions. And so today, I want to kind of think of some of these prepositions that have to do with the Christmas story, with the gospel. And 150 would be uh, way too big of a task to try to cover on one Sunday morning. So today we're going to do five. Can you guys do five? I think we could do five together, all right? So we're going to describe the relationship uh, that God has with man by looking at five prepositions from the Scriptures. And what is amazing is this, this turns out to be the narrative of the entire Bible, just through five prepositions. And we're going to start with this one, before. So we say, God is before us. God is before us. Go back to Psalm chapter 90 with me. Psalm chapter 90. Yeah, this is a beautiful passage of Scripture, uh, but we'll read a couple of verses there. And as you turn to Psalm chapter 90, uh, let me give you the dictionary definition of the word before. And before it can actually be used as three different parts of speech, uh, an adverb, a conjunction, or a preposition. Uh, as an adverb, it can mean uh, in the period of time preceding a particular event. There's also an archaic definition that says in front of someone or something. Uh, as a conjunction, before means in advance of the time when something happened or in preference to some person or thing. And then as a preposition, it means during the period of time preceding or in front of. Now, I, I brought up all the definitions because I want to show you that God meets all the definitions. God is before us in every way, shape, and form. He's before us in time, but he's also in front of us in everything. Uh, look at Psalm chapter 90 and verse number 1. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. From everlasting to everlasting. We can't even comprehend it, but we can still believe it. When you take it upon yourself to give God advice, you may want to remember that he is from everlasting to everlasting. Uh, if you start to feel like you're pretty important and you have life figured out, you should just walk outside on a dark night and look up at the stars. 
I love how Genesis 1 says, he made the stars also. Right? There are so many stars that we have uh, no capacity to truly count them all, even with computers. And uh, there are stars that have been labeled by astronomers that are five billion times the size of our sun. And you can fit a million Earths into the sun. That is unbelievable. Right? So that means that there are stars that are five billion times a million. Can you even do all the zeros? Like, it'd be like doing, figuring out the national debt, right? Think of how many zeros that that would be. The Creator is infinite in every way. He's before us in time. He's before us in power. He's before us in logic. He's before us in creativity. He is before us in knowledge. He's before us in supremacy. Colossians 1.16 talks about Jesus this way. It says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now, God revealed himself to Moses and the Israelites by a certain name. He told Moses, uh, go to them and tell them that my name is, I am that I am. And throughout Scripture, there is no more powerful name than the name I am that I am. Uh, Compare that to who we are without God. Okay? Without God, I am not. I am not eternal. I'm not all-powerful. I'm not all-knowing. I'm not omnipresent. I'm not holy. I'm not able to save myself. And uh, I want you to jump back to Psalm 57. As you jump back to Psalm 57, let's see the second preposition this morning. Let's see the word above. God is above us. Above means at a higher level. If you ever begin to think that you are God, uh, you should think again. Uh, look, look at Psalm 57. Uh, such a beautiful psalm here as well. Verse number five, be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. We know that God is at a level that we can't even comprehend as human beings. Uh, And you know, so many people buy into the lie of humanism that says that you are your own God that you are equal with God. And the moment that you start to think that you're a God or that you're equal with God, that you fall into the same trap that Lucifer did. Isaiah 14 records that he said, I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation and the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Thinking you're above God leads to destruction. Uh, But thinking you're above other people will also wound you deeply. Your relationships will constantly be sabotaged. 
if you think more highly of yourself than you should think. And like it or not, God is above us. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. Paul wrote to the Ephesians about one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. He wrote to the Philippians that God has highly exalted Jesus and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that someday, every person on this earth is going to exclaim that God is above you. Now, it's either going to happen willingly through worship or forcefully through judgment, but it's going to happen, right? Have you ever trained a puppy before? Uh, it can be challenging, right? Anybody have a puppy at your house right now? Oh, yeah. It's always fun to train puppies. And uh, there's all sorts of different theories on how you train puppies. And, and I remember <coughs> uh, I had a pastor when I was growing up that said that you would grab the puppy by both ears and look in their eyes and just tell them how it is. Right? You just look at them. And uh, I know my dad used to use a rolled up newspaper to bop their nose a little to train them. And uh, uh, my mom, she would just yell at them with, you know, you, you get out of here. Don't you get in here. This is the kitchen. Get out of here. Right? As if the puppy understood. And apparently the puppy did understand. Um, but you know, <laughs> when we try to uh, think our way around God, we're kind of like that little puppy, and God has to grab us by the ears and say, look up here at me. Look up here at me. I'm talking to you. Don't you come in this room again. Don't you get in that cupboard. You go outside when you got to go potty. You do everything I tell you. You're the puppy. I'm the owner, right? Now, how many of you have ever, ever had a puppy that you did not train very well, and they became a bigger dog, right? Yeah, how did that go? Right? That's, that's a disaster. And, and yet, you know what? Uh, the owner is still the owner. And the puppy is still the puppy. Whether the puppy is obedience trained or not obedience trained, there's still that relationship. And when it comes to God being above us, we are going to recognize that he's above us. We're either going to do it willingly or we're going to be forced to do it. And a lot of people are going to be in that situation because God is above us in righteousness. We can't hope to measure up to his glory. We fall short. And so let's talk about where we are so far. Okay, so we've got two prepositions so far. God is before us and above us. That means there is no human path to access with God. The only way we could relate to God and interact with God would be for God to become a man. And that's what we read about in Matthew 1 this morning. God is with us. God is with us. Now, we read in Matthew 1, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth the son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with 
us. Now, with is not really a word that we look up in the dictionary, right? We kind of just all know what it means. Uh, It means relating to the case of a person or thing. The God of eternity, before us and above us, stooped to become a human being so that he could save us from our sins. That's what God with us means. After Jesus had been on the earth for 33 years, in the final days before his crucifixion, uh, he told his disciples, this is in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And he'd been trying to explain to them for a few years that he is God. And now he was trying to offer them comfort about the future. And so he said, in my father's house are many mansions. Uh, If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And, And then he added, and whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. And Jesus had clearly explained that that he's going to his father's house, and that he was the path or the way for them to be with God. But we find out that they didn't quite understand. They had been walking around with Jesus for three years, and they didn't understand this. In fact, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how do we know the way? Of course, Jesus famously replied, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. But I want you to listen to this next verse, because Jesus is about to explain, this is in in John 14, verse number 7, Jesus is about to clearly explain what God with us means. Okay, if you're ever wondering, I hear all the time, Emmanuel, God with us, what does that really mean? Jesus said to them, if you had known me, you should have known my father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Did you catch that? He said, fellas, listen, if you really know me, then you know the father too. You've seen the father. Well, they still didn't understand. And so now Thomas had asked the question before and Philip chimed in. And he said, Lord, just show us the father. Show us the father. That would be enough. Show us the father. And listen to the answer Jesus gave to Philip. And it has this preposition, with. He said, have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? So he's telling Philip, I am Emmanuel. I am God with us. I am God. And when you read through the passages at the end of the Gospels about why they crucified Jesus, why they crucify him? Because he said that he was the Son of God. And he is the Son of God. And he is God. And he is God with us. And so he came to this earth to reveal God's love and to secure man's path to redemption. Now, I want to move on to this fourth preposition, and I I love this one. God is for us. God is for us. It means that God is in favor of us. 
He wants good for us. We see this in so many places in Scripture uh, that really there's no way to cover all of them here in this message. But I want you to realize that God is for you. 2 Peter 3 says, He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so let's put this together. The God who is before all and above all showed up in the manger as Emmanuel, God with us. He made his presence known. And Jesus grew up to go to the cross for us. Now, when you read through your Bible, and every Christian should read through their Bible, you will find some awesome phrases and thoughts. And sometimes they just jump off the page straight to your heart because the Holy Spirit is illuminating the Word of God for you to apply to your life. And I was reading one day in, in Psalm 56, and in Psalm 56, the psalmist David is crying out to God again. He's in fear for his life, and he's in Philistine territory. He says, what time I'm afraid I will trust in thee. And then he said, I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. And so I'm reading along, and all of a sudden I hit verse number nine. When I cry unto thee, then shall my enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. Wow. So I underlined that phrase in my Bible. God is for me. And I thought, I wonder if there are any other phrases in the Bible that talk about being God, where God is for me or God is for us. And sure enough, I found one that said, if God be for us, who can be against us? And so I kept underlining these phrases that prove that God is for us, that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He wants our faith to succeed. He wants us to move forward. And he alone gives us the power to live the Christian life. I don't have uh, time this morning to do this whole study on these phrases that I've ended up underlining, but I do want uh, to share one more of them with you. It's in Romans 5, and if you want to see it, turn there for yourself, Romans chapter 5. God is for us. And by the way, uh, this is the core faith value. If you do not believe that God is for you, then you will question God's plan for your life. It's what happened in the Garden of Eden, right? Uh, the serpent got Eve to question, is God really good? Does God really have good intentions for your life? And if the serpent can get you to believe that God is not for you, then you will turn away from God. You will turn your passions somewhere else. And look at Romans chapter 5. So verse 6 says this. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Okay, now that's me. Okay, it's also you. Jesus died for sinners. And in verse 7 <laughs> kind of tells us, hey, you guys aren't any good. Uh, some people might die for a good man, uh, but you guys were sinners when Jesus died for you. Look at verse 8. But God commendeth or gave 
offered his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. Now, you keep putting this all together. The God before and above all came to be with us, and he is for us. He's for us so much that Jesus became the one-time sacrifice for sins. He died for us. We could not ascend to him, and so he descended to us so that he could pay for our sins with his own precious blood. I'm starting to think that maybe these prepositions are important. Now, let's see this last one. God is in us. God is in us. And really, this puts together the full gospel picture. Yeah, before, above, with, for, and now in. <clears throat> There's an extraordinary word picture in Revelation chapter 3. And in Revelation 3, God is sending a message uh, to the seven churches in Asia through uh, their particular pastor or angel, as they're called here. Uh, in Revelation chapter 3, there is a message to a church in Laodicea. <clears throat> and the, the message to the church at Laodicea is the roughest message to any of this, these churches. Yeah, this particular church was called lukewarm. They weren't hot, they weren't cold, they were just at ease. Things were casual. Uh, they were committed to Christ when it was convenient for them to be committed to Christ. And uh, this particular church, to me, describes American Christianity uh, to the letter. Like, uh, American Christianity is at ease. It's a comfort. It's a thing where I'll serve God when it's convenient, but you know what? It's Christmas Day. I'm staying home with my family. <clears throat> well, what do you think we're celebrating on Christmas Day? We're celebrating Jesus who was born in the manger, right? And I've seen this big social media thing this last couple of weeks about, or should we go to church on Christmas? Well, what in the world is Christmas for? Like, I'm just asking these questions. But who would ask that question? Well, the Laodicean church would. Because who was the Laodicean church about? They were about me. What do I want? What do I feel? What's best for my family? What do I like? What do I not like? What do I prefer? Right? And, and so this is that type of church where it's just totally casual. Now listen to what God uh, reads in their, their thoughts. Yeah, this is so powerful. Verse 17. He says, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That's where the Laodicean church was at. They said, God, we don't really need anything, including you. We've got it all figured out. Right? Now, is it possible to have church without God? Well, apparently it is. In Revelation 3, God says it's possible. And when you look around the landscape today of things that are called church, right? It is incredible uh, how many churches may be having church without God actually being there, without God being present. And if you look at the end of the verse, God hit him with the truth bomb. 
He said, do you not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? So God tried to call this casual church to repentance. They were doing church without Jesus. And listen, if Jesus is not in the church, then what are we even doing here? It would be a complete waste of time for a church to exist without Jesus being at the center of everything we do. But here in Laodicea, Jesus wasn't in the church. He was outside of it. They had left him out through their prideful, self-secure attitude. Jesus cannot exist where pride exists, right? It's very clear in Scripture that if pride is in a heart, Jesus won't be there, right? He cannot exist where pride exists. And so they had left him out. Now, here's what I want to get to. This is so powerful. In Revelation 3 and verse number 20, there's this word picture of Jesus standing outside of the church, knocking on the door, asking to be let back in. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. You know, because of Jesus, those who receive salvation hold the privilege of God abiding in our hearts. But we have the responsibility to keep our hearts as a temple of God. And if we act like the church of Laodicea, we may talk a lot about God and never truly have him in our lives, right? They, the Laodicean church, you can see that they had all the banners still up. And they had all the slideshows, and they had everything that painted that they were a church of Jesus Christ, that they were serving the one true God. And yet, everything about their lifestyle said, we only serve him here one hour a week. The rest of the time, we have no idea who he is. The rest of the time, we act like everybody else in the culture, We buy into all the sinfulness that the entire culture buys into. But then when we come back together on Sunday, oh, he's God. He's great. He's marvelous. And Jesus is standing outside the door, knocking. And I wonder if Jesus may be standing outside the door of your heart today, knocking. Because your lifestyle has pushed him away. And he wants back in. Paul referenced this indwelling Christ in Colossians 1 and verse 27. He said, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, let's put these five prepositions together. And really, when you take these all together, this is the story of Christmas. This is the story of the gospel. God is before us and above us. We have no ability to ascend to him. And yet, he descended to be Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus died for us. And for all who receive his gift of eternal life, he lives 
in us. And when Joseph heard the words in his dream, I'm sure that he struggled to comprehend the meaning. Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth the Son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Before, above, with, for, in. The gospel in five words. <clears throat> or you could use these five words. Jesus died for my sins. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the message <clears throat> of the gospel. That it's not just a story about a baby. It's a story about a savior knocking on the door of our hearts, knocking on the figurative door of the church. Lord, we know that you want to be a part of everything we do. And yet, for some who are here today, it could be that you're not at the center of our lives. That we are not allowing you any type of guidance in our lives. We're not yielding to you in our daily decision-making. And I, I pray that this morning we would commit our hearts to you, that we would remember that Jesus died for us and that he desires to live in us so that he can guide us to become like Jesus. And I pray that you would move in our hearts, help us to be passionate about the, your purpose for our lives and not our own. Guide us now from this place. Yeah, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope you guys have a wonderful week. I know there's not much time till Christmas. We hope to see you on Wednesday night for candlelight. Remember, it's at 6.30. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you.